All right, Second Thessalonians. Uh, when we were looking at this chapter last week, beginning in verse 3, uh, we fa- found Paul writing to uh, these particular people in this church in Thessalonica. And they were under persecution. They were under a sur- suffering. He called it suffering and afflictions. And that was essentially what was happening in the church. And I mentioned to you yesterday, uh, last time that Paul did not know how effective his ministry had been in three different places in Macedonia. He went from church, I mean, from city to city to city, and he was run out of all three of the cities. And when he left, the church was in disarray, uh, the, the people that he was ministering to. And he had no idea. In fact, he was quite discouraged we find when he was uh, writing other letters uh, about these situations. And then Timothy and Silas came and mentioned to him that these churches were thriving. And these were some of the problems that they had. But they were thriving under persecution. And so Paul wrote these letters to encourage them as well as encourage himself. And actually, you can see it in what he says. Uh, He says, you are an encouragement to me. Okay. And then the other thing that he points out is, of course, he was answering some questions that they had, particularly about the second coming and some of the things that he had said to them about the second coming. And they had got mixed up. And so he, in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, really spent a lot of time talking about that particular issue. But mainly, in the first part of this chapter, what we find is is this is about the second coming, but it is also about their afflictions and their sufferings and the struggles that they were having with life. Okay, And so that's what I title it, uh, the very first page, they're a comforting perspective. Okay, So that's the first page, a comforting perspective dash the second coming and suffering. Okay, So that's what we looked at that first sheet there last week. And what we found is is that Paul said to them, uh, I have seen three great things occur in your life that has been produced by suffering. And then he said right after that, this was actually the plan of God for your life. Okay, This is what the judgment of God was to send you into suffering. So it was God's plan to let this happen. So he was trying to encourage them that this was not something that is unusual and that this was not something that they should try to run away from, but they should try to find the purposes that God had for them in the midst of the suffering because it was God's judgment for their life. It was his plan for their life. And then he mentions to them three things that he has been told that was really growing in their lives. And so when you would look at you going through affliction, struggles within your life, uh, some kind of suffering, this is not persecution, but we go through similar types of suffering, and this is on all types of suffering, not just persecution. He said that these are three things that you should look for. The first was to enlarge your faith, and that's on that first sheet. Okay, There are three things, A, B, and C under a number two, okay? And what he basically stated to them was, what I have seen 
is that God has enlarged your faith by your struggles. Your struggles and those struggles in the plan of God and in his mind were things that were to cause your faith to enlarge. And that is one of the things that you and I are to see when we walk into things that are difficult. We're having a normal day. Things are going well. We open a bill, and all of a sudden we realize we no longer have a normal day. We pick up a phone call, and somebody calls and tells us that there is some kind of emergency that is now occurring in part of your life. Okay, uh, You go to see a doctor, and you come out of the doctor's office, and you find yourself in a agitated state because you're not ex- you don't know what's now in the future. Okay, all these kinds of things that happen to anybody at any time in, in their life. And is this something that God does not have control over? Does God know that this is happening? Yes, he does. And it, does he desire for you to go into them? Yes, he does. Okay, is this God's perfect will? No, it's not. Suffering is linked to sin. Okay, and the fallen world that God has promised in Romans eight twenty eight for those of us who are trying to find the will of God and follow it, we will move into things okay that are terrible and and difficult for us to live with, but that is the will of God for us, and He has promised to take that that circumstance and bring out of that good. What is some of the good to enlarge your faith? In other words, people will say, well, what's the good? Okay, And Paul is defining this. He is saying, this is an opportunity for a man to find out what his faith is really like. It's an opportunity to see where it really is. Okay, And how will it stand? Okay, And how would you walk with God? It is an enlargement of your faith. Okay, It causes it to grow. And so that's one of the purposes and one of the meanings and the benefit that we find going into tough situations. The next one it talks about in that particular one is, is that you uh, will learn to love each other and grow in the understanding of love itself in the middle of this struggle. All these struggles link us together. I mean, just, just the thing that Mike was talking about is a understanding of the desire inside of us because of what God has done inside of us to reach out and love somebody in the midst of a struggle. Okay, It, it is a desire that has been placed there because God has placed it there himself because he walked with us through definite struggle. And from that, we should want to love we should want to grow in this. We should, and that's what it's saying. You love each other. I, that's, that's the report. Back and forth, you're taking care of each other. You're loving each other in the middle of these struggles. And that's exactly what this particular passage is saying. I, I really don't believe that we really move to love somebody real well. In other words, it's not... It doesn't cause us to make that passionate move to somebody until you yourself have been humbled and tested and struggle in, in, love, in, in situations that are difficult. Okay? The real passion of your soul 
that comes out in love comes through your understanding of what God did for you in this and how you need to give that and how people it gave to you and lifted you up. And from that, you were to grow. Okay? And so that's essentially, that's the second. What, what does this do for you? It causes you to learn to love others who are struggling. Okay? And causes you to walk and move forward in love to help them. Okay? And we, we didn't take the time to look at uh, Hebrews 10, but it's, it's listed there for you, 10, 23 through 25. This is where it says that essentially in the midst of a congregation, in the midst of, of, of a group of Christians, we are to gather together to basically learn how to bear one another's burdens and to, to walk in love with that person. That is one of the things that causes us to gather together. Okay? And causes us to see each other day, week by week, to hear what other people are going through and to step forward and help. Okay? And so that's essentially what he says. And the third thing is, is that these people, you do not know how to persevere until you have to persevere. It, it is a quality that has to be developed. It is not something that is, you just own it. You know, it's there when you were born. Perseverance has to do with going through trouble and basically moving through it. And perseverance means you stick to the core understandings of your life and you go through those things okay, to the very end. You don't lose them. Okay, you don't lose them. Perseverance is taking step after step after step in the middle of pain, in the middle of struggle, in, in the middle of not understanding okay, of all these particular issues. You persevere holding on to the truths of your life. Okay, and you do not give them up even though they are battered through suffering. Okay, and you do that to the very last breath that you take that is, that's perseverance. Okay, so that's essentially what you see. So that's kind of what we looked at last week on that first sheet. So you want to want to turn to the second sheet. When, uh, and I want to read this passage to you now, 7 through 12. Uh, I think I'm going to just read 7 through 10. I don't know if I'll get to 11 or 12 today. Uh, I, I hope so, but may not. Okay? And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retributions to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Okay, now if we get time, we'll get to 11 and 12. 11 and 12 is a prayer that grows out of this teaching. Now, this 7 through 10 has been labeled by commentaries and people who study the Word of God as, as actually a hymn 
they're not sure Paul invented this hymn, but they're not, they don't think so. And they believe that somehow he got some of the ideas from a Jewish hymn. And from that Jewish hymn, he put in the Christian ideas. Because if you look at it in Greek, the phrases that are used in Greek are rhythmic. Okay, you don't see it here. But the phrases that are on 10, uh, excuse me, 7 through 10 are what we call rhythmic. They're, they, they line up, uh, and as you say them in, with your voice, uh, they stay within a pattern. And that becomes kind of like a song. So that's what they say that this is. And that's why I label it the ultimate perspective for present suffering is the relief, okay, that God, final relief God will give to you, and that is called the hymn of the second coming, which is B. Okay, and so that's essentially what you're seeing. Uh, it's interesting when Paul says this in verse 7, he basically says, you know the thing that keeps your perspective right in life is your understanding of the second coming. That is what keeps your perspective right in life, okay, is your understanding of the second coming. In relationship to suffering and the struggle that you're going through in this life, it is the final relief. That's, that's what it states. It's the final relief, okay? And it is a goal that you look. You, you see that, and that goal keeps you persevering. It keeps you understanding what to do and how to go through. Now, I, I, want, you, I want, want you to be honest with yourself because the truth of the matter is, is I do not believe that most of us really truly use the second coming as a perspective. We, we have it in our broad frame of references. In other words, everybody knows that that's where we're all going. But when it comes to suffering or struggling through a day's problem, it isn't the second coming that you bring into play in relationship to your suffering and your affliction. You, you just don't bring that in. You, you are narrowed. The perspective is narrowed to the day and the problem that you have. And very rarely will you reach way beyond that and grab a hold of the perspective of the second coming and pull that into the day to give you an overview and give you a lift beyond that problem. It's very rare. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that doesn't do this. But as a whole, I would say that's true of most people. We know that that's a perspective. We know that that's our destiny. But when the actual problem hits, the only center is the present. Okay. What am I going to do about this problem? Okay. And that problem could go on for years and years and years, actually. And you still don't pull that in. Very rarely do you pull it in. And Paul is saying, this is the real relief that you will receive, not only when it's ended and when it really comes, but when you are in the middle of your own suffering right this minute. Okay? It is the thing that will give you perspective. It will give you perseverance. It will strengthen your faith. It will be the thing that will cause you to go, that's the end. That's where all of this is moving me to. And if we can get a hold of it, it causes you to step up higher than what it is the present day problem. And it gives the, the present day problem a littleness, a smallness, a perspective. Okay, What's the problem with the problem? 
is that it is essentially something that blows everything out of out of out of joint. Okay, and it's big, but it's really not big when you put it in the in the perspective uh, the perspective of the second coming. Okay, so that's what Paul is saying. Pull that in, get a hold of that. This is the final relief, even for the present problem. Okay, and so that's what you find him saying. What, by the way, I gave you a definition of relief there, a number uh, two under A on that sheet. The word relief means rest from trouble. Rest from trouble. Now, if you want to put right beside that, rest from pr- trouble could be rest for the present, and it can be the final rest for all trouble. But in, in relationship to rest from pr- trouble right this minute, okay, that perspective will give you a sense of how to hold on to a, 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 a situation that you have and give you a way to get a hold of it a lot better than you do right this minute. Okay. So that's what that is. It's rest for trouble. It releases from tension. And the word actually, relief, means a, a bow, a, a, a bow and arrow, a bow that has a tight string on it, so tight it is extremely taut, extremely tight, okay? And what this is is the releasing of that tension on that bowstring, okay? That, that's basically what it's saying. And so when you get that perspective, it should help release the tension of the moment that you have in the midst of trouble, okay? And that's essentially what it means, Okay? The word relieve under the hymn of the second coming in B and verse 7, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed. Revealed means to be manif- a manifestation. In this case, it's a manifestation of a person at present who is concealed. Okay, So when Jesus is going to be revealed, that basically means that most of his qualities and if, if not really to the world, all of him is essentially covered. It's veiled. Okay? And when he comes, it will be unveiled. Everything will be seen. Okay? And essentially, all of that becomes a part of the revelation, the, perusa, uh, the actual coming of Christ and coming alongside of us where we actually see it. Same thing for heaven. Heaven is still very much covered. Okay, But when that particular event occurs, heaven basically follows Christ, and we find what heaven really is. All, all heaven really is is what we lost. Okay, And now we see it again, and the curse is gone. The new Jerusalem has descended. Okay? And you, you know it, you, you know something about it, but you've never seen it. Okay? And once you see it, it is an unveiling of majesty and beauty and glory and power okay? that you've never seen. Okay? So that is the understanding of what the second coming means to all of us. Okay? And it will be totally and completely revealed. All right? Uh, in a flaming fire, that, that, that particular verse 
is not for the angels. It looks like it's attached to the angels, but the flaming fire is actually the, the, the clothing or the body of Christ himself. He is the flaming fire. Actually, you can see it in uh, e- Ezekiel chapter 1. You can also see it in Revelation chapter 1 when it actually describes what Jesus really looks like okay, in terms of his real glory. And when you see it, it says his, his, his clothes are like fire. Okay. And that's the description of it. His activity includes dealing out retributions or vengeance, verse 8. The word vengeance or retribution is never used in the Old Testament except for God. And the commentaries will say this is one of the places that you find in the New Testament that tells you directly that Jesus has taken the attributes of God himself because nobody is ever allowed to bring out retribution or vengeance that is holy except God himself in the Old Testament. And here it's attributed to Jesus. And so they point this out, that this is a divine quality that tells you that Jesus is divine. He is the one who's bringing retribution and judgment. He is the one who's bringing justice. He is the one who will judge. And all of that is only given to God in the, in the Word of God. And so Jesus is given that. That makes him holy. It makes him divine. Okay? Now, verse uh, 9. And these will pay the penalty of eternal damnation. Excuse me, verse 8 and 9. Dealing out retributions to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I know no verse in the Bible that defines exactly what it is that causes a person to go to hell. Then verse 8. This is one of the strongest verses that defines why it is a person finds himself in hell. Okay? And number nine basically explains what hell is. Now, there are a lot of aspects to hell that you can take in terms of what hell is described as. But if actually you study hell in in, in the New Testament and actually in the Old Testament... In the New Testament, there is only about five verses that actually refer to hell. Okay? So we don't have much of a picture of hell, even though we think we do. Okay? And much of those pictures are actually wrong. In other words, the concept of fire, there are two meanings for the concept of fire. One is like a fire that's burning a building down, which most everybody attributes hell to be. The other concept of the biblical concept of fire in the Bible has to do with an insatiable lust that will not let you go. It burns you up. It just keeps burning. Okay? It's an insatiable lust. Okay? Now, what does it say in this particular verse about what hell is? The, one of the basic definitions of hell. And those who will pay a penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. The word presence means the face. That's what it means. So you're so close to him, you can see his face. 
Okay, You can see his presence. It means like he turned and you could see him. Okay? They can't. You can't. That's the one thing that is so strong in the description of Revelation is that now you are in his presence. Eternally. They are eternally not in his presence. And that is a destruction. That is not a, that is not a uh, the destruction is it, the word means a ruin. It, it doesn't mean that they're killed. It means a ruin. That's their destruction. And the, and the destruction has two aspects to it. They are not in his presence. They cannot see him. He is no longer a part of the equation of their life. Do you know that he's still an equation, a part of the equation in anybody's life that's on the face of the face of this earth? He's still pursuing. He's still everything that's around you that's got a taste of good and glory and power is nothing but a voice of God. It's his presence. Every piece of nature, every grass blade, every warmth of the sun, every single thing that we see that causes us to have a sense of peace and beauty inside of us and magnificence and marvel and go, man, is this a beautiful day? Okay, Every bit of that is, according to Psalm, Psalm 19, is the general revelation of God of himself through nature. And then his actual presence Okay, is the special revelation of God through Jesus himself, where we see the very nature and all that God is. Okay. So what you find is that the presence of God is gone, and then it says, and from the glory of his power. The power is his majesty and everything that causes him to have created everything and protect everything and cause everything to be perfect. Okay, so it, it it really has to do with something that's in him, but something that is doing something. Okay, and they cannot see that; they will no longer ever see it again. It's gone. Okay, that's hell. The goodness of the glory of God is no longer there. The presence of God is no longer. They're, they're away from it. Okay? Now that's a description biblically of what hell really is. And who are they? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The these is verse 8. Who do not know God. Who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why they're in hell. There is only one unforgivable sin. Only one. Okay? It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means I came to you. I presented everything that I am to you. I told you of who I was and what my what I would would do for you, and you rejected it. You don't want it. 
And I came again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Every day you got up, I came. Through nature, through everything around you. And you said, no, 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 no. And then you finally said no, and you meant it. And I withdrew. They are living in a hell right now, but not its full hell, because the glory of God in nature okay, is still there and still speaking. But the presence of God has removed themselves. Okay, When somebody tells you, I have committed the unforgivable sin, and God won't forgive me, and He won't love me, and He won't, be, won't accept me. Then you don't understand the forgive. You know, if you say He won't love me, and the first, you know, that means He's still working on you. He has not removed Himself. Okay, you told God, you you blasphemed Him, you cursed Him, and you told Him, "Go to heaven." <laughs> And he went. He quit. Why? Because they knew that was it. There will be a time when that is it. It is the one sin he cannot and will not forgive because it is a breaking of your will. Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 33, 11 says, Oh, that they would turn from their wicked ways, and that I might forgive them. Okay? But they won't. Okay? So that is the definition. And so this is the clearest place in the, the Word of God. At the second coming, this is at the second coming, he will deal out a retribution. The retribution is, in my opinion, I don't believe that God would deal out any other retribution except that one retribution. And what he'll do is do what C.S. Lewis says. All he'll do is ratify what you want and you don't want it. And even though you, some people go, that's, that's foolish. If I had to choose heaven and hell, I would always choose heaven. Okay? A third of the angels lived in heaven and chose not to be with them. Thorough. They live with him. Okay? In a perfect state with him. And then they chose not to be with him. And they got what they wanted. Okay? I believe that the justice of God hangs on the idea that essentially a person who rejects God truly, truly rejects him and does not want him. And C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce defines hell in an, an unusual way. If you read that, it's an unusual little novel. It isn't burning a fire. It isn't anything. It's the giving you of everything that you wanted within your lust. And God is removed. Now, it doesn't mean that he can't see it. It doesn't mean that he can't control it. But his presence is gone, and all the goodness and the glory and the majesty of God is gone and you're given what you want. All the satiation of your own personal lusts. And your total rejection of him. I don't know what the white judgment street, uh, uh, 
white judgment throne seat will look like in terms of that judgment. But my and my feeling is is that he will offer. Now this is not biblical, so don't jump all over me here. <laughs> I believe that he will offer these people one last chance to basically believe in it, and they will carte blanche not accept. Hitler will not accept it. Okay, maybe your own son will not accept it. How can you possibly? Live in heaven when your son is in hell. Okay. C.S. Lewis said, if there's a tear in heaven, hell has won. That judgment seat has to justify every single act to where you feel completely at peace with it. Every person in heaven will agree with the justice, justice of God. Now, just what I said, okay, is my speculation. So you can basically say I don't agree with that, that's fine. But that's from my study of the word, and that's the way I have a sense of it inside my own heart. Okay. But this is what you find. This is the definition of what hell is. It's away from the face of God. Okay, it is away from the glory and the beauty and the majesty of all that he's created. Okay. And it is basically given to those who have rejected him. Absolutely. He and his son. And the message of salvation that he has brought to them. Okay? That is really the only sin that will cause them to be sent to hell. Damn. Okay? Alright. Now, well, we're finished. Uh, <laughs> I still haven't got verse 10. Uh, to me, see, I've read this, and verse 10 just jumped out of me, out of me, and said, this is a song that I must get a hold of to hold me through the rest of my life. Okay? And you go take a little study. I gave you the silly sheets, so you can see all the ideas that I have. I've broken them down to kind of broken the phrases down and try to put them under columns to where they should kind of show you meaning Okay, it's fantastic. And my study this week was the last two verses, 11 and 12, which go with this. This is a prayer that comes out of the understanding of the hymn of the second coming, but particularly verse 10. And I, I never knew this prayer. So we've studied the prayers before, but this is a new one to me. Okay, and so what you should do is go look at that, I've broken it down for you. It's another way to pray according to the will of God. Here are people suffering. Okay, these are people who are suffering. And he says, now, after we've learned this hymn and what the final relief is, let me show you how I'm going to pray for you while you're, while you're in suffering. Let me show you. And so he shows you, tells you what he's going to pray. So it's an interesting little prayer for praying for people who are in suffering. Okay? All right. We will... I, I'm not going to be here for the next three weeks. Okay? I hate to do this to you, but I'll pick it up when I get back. Okay? Three weeks? Three. The reason, the reason this is my worst time of the year, this is the ending of the year. <coughs> Beginning next week, I start grading tests. Okay? And I, I grade tests for a solid week. Every single day, I go home and grade tests. 
and it takes me about two and a half hours to grade every single day. Okay? After I finish grading these tests, okay, which means I can't put anything together okay, in terms of the study, okay, and I, often I have to grade on Sunday. I mean, I'm not supposed to do that, but I often have to. Okay, but it's only once a year. And then immediately after that, I get 46 papers, and it takes me 30 minutes to grade a paper, and I try to average seven a day. And I got 46 students, and that means I work I, every, including Sunday, I have to grade seven, to get them back so that they can actually get them when they come home. They, they leave, and I stay and grade their papers. They go on a senior trip. Okay. Well, but they put in their work, so I'll put in mine. But that just means I I can't put any time in on preparing a lesson. Okay. And actually, I have to stay home most of the time and grade. So I'm, that's why I'm but that's part of what they told me I could have. <laughs> Otherwise, I couldn't do this. All right. So, we'll see you. Yes.